2020 has brought with it a number of plot twists that would be difficult to account for in even the most sophisticated strategic plans. Today, as part of the Becker's Health IT and Revenue Cycle virtual event, we're hitting pause to check in with leaders in patient experience, emergency medicine, and clinical informatics to learn the key ideas they're encountering around strategy, innovation, and engagement in their respective fields. My name is Molly Gamble. I'm Vice President of Editorial with Becker's Healthcare and Editor-in-Chief of Becker's Hospital Review. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Allison Tothi, Pediatric Medicine pediatric emergency medicine specialist and associate professor of pediatrics with the University of Chicago Medicine, Erica Steed, director of patient experience with Wellstar North Fulton Hospital, and Dr. Davin Lundquist, chief medical information officer for ambulatory services in the Ventura market of Dignity Health, now known as Common Spirit Health. Before we dive into our conversation today, let me ask our panelists to tell you a bit more about themselves. Dr. Tofi, let's start with you. Hi, Molly. Thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician by background. I have a broad, uh, uh, I have had broad experience in the very uh, various hospital leadership roles. Um, I've done everything from run a pediatric emergency department um, to building a new one to um, being the first chief experience officer for the health system at the University of Chicago um, and everywhere in between. I now help large um, organizations think about how we engage our patients in care from home back to home again, um, as well as how we engage uh, physicians um, to uh, in uh, enhancing and strengthening their resiliency and preventing burnout. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. Erica, can I ask you to go next? Absolutely. So my name is Erica Steed. I'm the Director of Patient Experience at Wallstar North Fulton. It's one of 11 hospitals in the health system. It's the largest health system in the state of Georgia. I've been doing patient experience work slash advocacy for the last 15 years. Um, it brings me a lot of joy to be the voice of patients who feel like their voice isn't being heard. I have a special needs son. Um, Ellison, who's autistic, um, he speaks now. He used to be nonverbal, so I'm really excited about that. So my passion comes from home, but I bring that to the workplace each and every day. Erica, thank you for joining us today. We're really looking forward to hearing your perspective in this discussion. And then Dr. Longquist. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a family physician by background and training um, and I've been with uh, Dignity Health now for about eight years, uh, originally joined as their uh, first CMIO in California, in the California market, and eventually uh, took on more responsibility to cover all of uh, Dignity Health, uh, sort of legacy Dignity Health, which was California, Arizona, and Nevada on the ambulatory side. So my focus has always been on the ambulatory side and, and you know, helping with our technology, EMR rollouts, uh, other innovative things. Um, and then, you know, recently we had this small merger with the uh, Catholic Health Initiatives um, and uh, we became Common Spirit Health. Um, don't ask me to name the other 18 states that had joined, uh, but we're in about 21 states now. And uh, I believe we're the, it's the largest nonprofit uh, in the country. And um, during that time, um, I took on some different roles. I, I became a chief medical officer for one of our medical groups in California. And then um, in this year, the beginning of this year, um, I joined um, uh, a startup that I've been using their technology for many years, Augmetics, 
as their first chief medical officer part-time. And then as part of that transition, um, now I became a local CMIO in, in one of the markets in California here in Ventura, California. Uh, again, still focused on the ambulatory side and, and I still uh, practice a little bit as well and see patients. Um, so uh, excited to be here and uh, um, I'm just uh, enjoying this journey. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think you know you each come from different backgrounds and respective markets. So I really am looking forward today to hearing your thoughts on two or three of the most substantial shifts you're seeing in strategy, innovation, and engagement, like I said, in your respective fields. Erica, let's start with you and with what you're seeing in patient experience. Can you highlight a few of these shifts that you've encountered and I'm going to follow up with some questions as needed and I welcome your colleagues with us to do so as well but let's start with patient experience what are you seeing in your work absolutely so I'll first start off by saying the panel that I'm with today it's like what I actually do on a day-to-day -day basis at work so I have been really actively engaged with my physicians in the emergency room I have been really actively engaged with my informatics team um, due to the fact that, you know, years ago, it was a big, huge push for, you know, um, patient and family center care, making sure the family members are at the bedside, making sure that, you know, they're collaborating, they're participating, they're offering information. And then back in March, we, it came down to no visitors. So some of the biggest things that we've been working on um, in the WellStar system is really trying to make sure that while the families can't be here physically on site, how do we make sure that we're providing them with the technology that they can utilize to still be able to communicate with the entire care team, as well as how they can be actively engaged with their loved one, being able to actually see them, knowing how their health condition is going. Another great thing that we're utilizing is just technology is coming out of the wazoo. You know, it's, we, there was a lot of white noise before where it was, you know, can I really utilize this technology? It forced us to want to utilize technology. So even in our emergency rooms, how we got really savvy with the technology around texting family members that were waiting in, the, in their cars or the virtual waiting rooms where, you know, um, patients were waiting in their car because they didn't want to be in the emergency room in case somebody had COVID. So utilizing a lot of technology has been um, what we've been utilizing. And then lastly, I'll just say that, you know, all these years there's been concerns around interpreter services, you know, waiting for the interpreter to get there. And now we're realizing we can utilize the tablets that we have in place to bring the interpreters um, at the bedside within, you know, 30 seconds, as opposed to waiting for somebody to be made available. So technology has really been our friend during this pandemic. You know, from that interpreter standpoint, I'm sorry, I just want to put a plug in. That is like life-saving for us. We use it all the time. It's my one of my favorite tools that we have. We should never, ever be using like a kid to interpret or a loved one because it is so easily accessible to be able to have an iPad or even pull out your own phone to be able to translate. We should be using a translator um, uh, all the time. Um, so I'm so glad you said that, um, uh, Erica, because um, we, I love it in the pediatric ER. It has been a game changer. Didn't mean to interrupt you, Molly, but I just wanted to put a plug no, in I'm glad that. you did. Uh, I actually would love to learn more about that. Is it, so is it a device where it then translates in the audio 
presents itself for the, the, the end user, the patient to hear? Can you just tell me more about the difference between, you mentioned using a, a, a kid or another family member to translate. I would just love to learn the difference uh, of what this technology, how it makes a difference for patients. So the technology that we use at my facility, I won't name the actual vendor, but the great thing about this technology is it's kind of like sending out a Skype call and an actual real interpreter comes up on the screen for us. And it's more than 300 languages. We use roughly about five languages all the time, but it's an actual real person that comes up on the screen and they're the, you know, they're the broker. They, they say exactly what the patient says and exactly what the nurse or the physician says. So it's the beauty of having an actual person um, available versus, you know, waiting that two or three hours for somebody to, you know, get in their car and drive to the organization because a lot of those positions are PRN. Part-time, sorry. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Okay. And then, you know, Erica, you said something else I wanted to follow up with was that before technology, there was just an abundance of it. It was almost white noise. Has this pandemic in your perspective brought like a reignited, renewed need for certain solutions? Whereas before those solutions were seen from your perspective as nice to have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, um, not to say my vendor again, but when I think about, you know, when patients were getting discharged from the hospital and, you know, they they didn't really want to utilize some of the technologies where they could see, you know, my diagnosis, prognosis, you know, all of their medical records previously. Um, they wanted it like faxed to them. Now, more so than ever, people are wanting access to their medical records. They're wanting to share this information with their physicians when they go to their primary care uh, appointments or their follow-up appointments. So we are doing a lot more education of patients, higher ages too. So before, you know, we would make the assumption that, okay, this person is 65, they're not going to want to utilize this technology. Well, guess what? During the pandi pandemic, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren have been teaching them how to utilize a lot of this technology. So no longer can we make the assumption that somebody doesn't know how to utilize the technology. Um, the grandmoms and the grandpops out there, they are using this technology um, even the more so that they can um, be the CEO of their bodies and really know about, you know, the medications and the diagnosis and stuff. So it sounds like you're seeing renewed interest for certain solutions and a renewed need. And then also the fact that this pandemic, the fact that when we say we're all in this together, that really is true in terms of demographics and perhaps stereotypes around ages and how they interact with technology have been really defied in these circumstances. So I think that's really interesting. I'm curious if your colleagues at any point have seen the same. But Erica, thank you for your comments. I would love to turn back to you later on this discussion. But Dr. Tothi, let's turn to you with what you're seeing in emergency medicine, the two to three most uh, significant shifts over the past several months that you've encountered. Uh, um, well, I mean, COVID-19 threw us all for a, a huge loop in the pediatric emergency department, the emergency department. Our volumes are down um, consistently back up, but um, uh, we are seeing almost a, it's, it, it has a couple consequences. One, 
obviously revenue and, and from a volume perspective, um, from a staffing model, we've had to rethink how we staff. Um, it's truly an unknown um, kids right now because they aren't in school. You know, it used to be we knew Monday afternoons were really busy and then it got busy all day Tuesday. And now it could be Thursday morning and we could be as busy on a Thursday morning as we would be on a Wednesday evening. Um, so, so all of our predictive um, analytics models are, have been tossed in the air and it's been clear where all the pieces are going to land. Um, so fortunately, um, as uh, emergency medicine doctors, um, pediat you know, pediatric emergency medicine doctors, we're used to um, uh, upheaval like this regularly because we don't know what's coming in the emergency department. I think that translates really well um, to a set of skills that allows us to be adept and agile when we are on the operational side of um, working in an emergency department. Um, so I think that that is, it's, it's, it's not new, but it's been real to us that we're really good at what we do, um, which leads me to, you know, one of my next comments, which I think is a challenge going forward, is how we engage um, the right people around the table to do the work that we need to do. And I think, in, in, in part, that those are physicians to make sure that um, uh, doctors are around the table, helping guide and frame out the way we are going to care for patients in, our in the future. Um, and I think that's challenging for a lot of institutions that um, are, um, are very used to having um, an administrative lane and a caregiving lane, and they are very um, separate. Um, but I would encourage institutions to think more about how you bring those groups together, um, because I think that we're more effective when um, we lead as dyads and triads, including a physician within that leadership role. Um, uh, I, I think specifically for us, one of our biggest challenges in, in pediatric emergency medicine right now is that we're not seeing all the kids that we need to see. The social, the, the social um, health disparities, consequences of um, COVID, closing down schools, closing down community centers, closing down daycares has been devastating um, to children in our communities. Um, and uh, we are not seeing the catchment of kids that we usually see um, that are being screened in schools, for instance, for learning um, disabilities or referrals for abuse or um, even just getting be, being fed on a regular basis. So from a like very personal how I care for children on a regular day-to-day -day basis and how my colleagues and friends care for them, um, that has been sort of a life-altering, game-changing in how we practice every day of work. Finally, um, where I think we need to head um, and be very and tread lightly and um, go quickly is um, around um, physician burnout and how we think about caring for the people who care for others in the work that they're in the work that we're doing. Um, it's even more evident um, with the weight of the past six months. Um, but this was there before, and it will continue to be present months and years from now. And how we engage um, our uh, physicians um, to um, uh, to take care of themselves while they take care of uh, take care of themselves and their loved ones while they take care of their patients, and I think that that is both a um, individual personal responsibility in terms of caring for yourself as a physician, but I truly believe that it is a system strategy level um, of an organization to think about this as well at this point. And Dr. Tothi, you mentioned too the the. The fact that so many social support structures have either all really changed over the past several months or completely 
um, gone to the wayside temporarily. I, I'm curious about, there's an overlap there in physician burnout because many of your colleagues, um, they're also wearing dual hats as parents taking on roles as teachers while maintaining their full-time positions. Have you seen how that lack of social and structural support has changed them or affected them over the past several months? That's a great, that's such a great question. Um, uh, so I think that, um, and this is, this, is, this is not physician specific, although I speak mostly on, um, uh, as it relates to physicians and physician burnout, but um, the weight of responsibility that um, uh, has shifted and um, everyone is struggling um, much more with um, their home lives in any way that feels like a struggle to them, right? It's different for me, it's different for you and you and you down the, you know, I mean, but they are, but they're real struggles. And um, uh, we, they are compounded by the fact that um, the world as we know it is different now uh, than it was six or seven months ago. Um, and we haven't adjusted to what our new normal is in part because we don't know how sustainable this new normal is versus what it'll look like next week um, versus what it'll look like, um, you know, uh, November 4th or uh, in December or, right, we just don't know. And so um, as a result of that, I, I think that it, this is a particularly challenging time. What I encourage my colleagues to do is go softly and carefully. And, and it's not that we have less expectations for the quality of care we provide because we don't, nor would a physician ever, I believe, allow themselves to perform at any lesser level than, you know, 150,000% um, when caring for patients. But there might be other things that fall a little bit by the wayside, and we have to be gentle about that and how we care for others. Sure, expanding on that. I love, I love the comment you made about the diet rounds. Um, so we're really pushing for the medical directors, you know, making sure that the medical director's voice is being heard right alongside, you know, the nursing leader. And I'm guilty of this where, you know, typically if there's any process improvement, any type of concerns I have, I'll go to the nursing leaders because the unit is, you know, predominantly ran by the nursing staff. But now I am working more with the medical directors of the different specialties in collaboration with the nursing leaders and just the different perspectives. And, you know, the physician saying, you know, it's not happening to me. You are including me in the process. And I know why this is happening. It makes sense now. And, you know, when you talk about the burnout, you know, me talking to physicians in years past, I would never have a physician come up and say, hey, Erica, I need some help with some scripting. So to hear physicians come up saying, hey, I need some keywords at key times because I've spoken to this family this morning, then the brother called and wanted to update this afternoon, and then we did interdisciplinary rounds, um, you know, at 12, and then another family has an update with want to talk to me at 6. How can I make sure I'm using the best use of my time to discuss, you know, the plan of care with, you know, a family member that can disseminate this to the rest of the team, you know, the rest of the family be that spokesperson. So... Thank you so much for sharing that feedback about the diet. I just think, sure, Erica, I just think there's times when, so many times when um, frontline people have a really good idea of what is working and what isn't working. And we should be leveraging um, those opinions um, in a productive way. I mean, some people have opinions that, you know, just want to give their opinions, but, if it, but leveraging valuable information from people who are actually in the trenches doing the work um, is incredibly important. 
Dr. Longquist, let's turn to you to hear what you're seeing, the top two to three largest shifts, strategy, innovation, engagement. We've heard a lot from your colleagues as it relates to patient engagement, uh, physician engagement and well-being. What are you seeing in, in your lane of clinical informatics? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, sort of adding on to the theme, right? Obviously, um, you know, I've been in roles in the past where um, I was part of more of a, of a strategy team, you know, thought leadership, where we were ant trying to anticipate, you know, uh, where to invest money in terms of, you know, what kinds of technologies would really enable our providers to, you know, have the best, uh, you know, experience, the patient's experience, but also fit into the business model, right, that we were doing. And I think um, this year has caused us to, um, you know, really shorten the horizon for our strategy, right? Like it, it's no longer our five-year plan. It's like, you know, what's our five-day plan, you know, for this week? Because, um, you know, this pandemic has brought new information so, you know, fast and furious um, that we've had to react over and over again, right? So um, I think, you know, we look at all aspects of care from, you know, in terms of phys from a physician perspective, um, one, you know, what's the venue uh, of care? You know, how are they going to, how are these patients going to get access to the care? Um, and then, you know, what's the method? Um, what are the documentation requirements? What are the billing requirements? Um, you know, in the beginning, we weren't getting paid for, for telemedicine. Then all of a sudden we are getting paid, but that's been changing, you know, like every few weeks, the amount of reimbursement changes. And so, um, I think across the board, we saw, you know, dips in volume as people have indicated. Um, I think in the, maybe in the primary care space, a little less than maybe an ER or hospital, you know, for in that initial phase. Um, but, you know, it was still a challenge, right? And so, you know, how do we adapt, um, you know, staffing issues with, you know, um, you know, people having daycare issues, you know, their kids aren't in school anymore, they're not in daycare, they're not wherever. And so um, not to mention someone tests positive and you have to shut down or send a bunch of people home. And so um, I, I just think across the board, there's just been, there, there's not a lot of sort of long-term strategy. It's really been very short-term strategy. So I think that's been a big change. And I don't really see that, um, you know, getting back to that longer term anytime soon. I think, um, you know, in the software world and technology world, they talk about sort of this agile development. And I think in some ways we need agile strategy, right? To sort of, you know, sort of test some things, but be very open to sort of like, you know, what's on the ground, what data are we getting? And so as that, as the leadership sort of comes up with a plan of how they're going to do things, then uh, obviously, you know, we need in, in the informatics space, you know, it's our job to sort of ensure one, that the technology is working as it's supposed to, and two, that the technology is, um, you know, usable, right? That the doctors um, know how to use it, you know? And um, I think, again, in the past, I would um, be, you know, maybe thinking about which technologies are, are you know, bigger picture. And in my new, my current role, I was actually doing one-on-one -on -one uh, video visit sessions with the doctors themselves to make sure they knew how to use it. They knew how to troubleshoot. Um, I never thought my sort of day-to-day -day doctors would become tech support, right? So, I mean, but I think any of you that have had to, you know, you've been on the other side with somebody and they don't know how to connect to audio and you're like, 
you know, trying to show them. I had one of our older doctors, it was kind of funny, he actually put on a piece of paper with arrows, you know, to, to show the patient where, where to go. And um, it was a very non-tech solution to, to help with technology. Um, but I think, you know, doctors are getting creative and, and have really adapted well. But, um, you know, we've been, we've tried to be flexible and nimble at sort of adapting the, the, the EMR, you know, to have new note templates that support telemedicine documentation, the consent that you have to get, what type of visit was it? Was it video and audio or audio only? Um, you know, how do you bill for this? What are the codes you use? And so um, there's just been a lot of effort around just kind of this new normal as it's called, right? Um, and so, um, and then now we're sort of thinking about, okay, what are their aspects of the workflow? So the, the visit was the most important thing. We had to solve that. How do we accomplish visits? Um, now we're thinking about, well, how does a patient virtually check in? How do they virtually schedule? Uh, obviously, we're kind of, we were kind of dipping our toes in these things before, but this catalyst uh, of the, you know, the pandemic as a catalyst to sort of drive all these technologies um, to sort of enable much more self-service uh, consumer-oriented um, solutions um, especially with the backing of, you know, the big payers to say, hey, we're going to, we're going to um, support this, right? We're going to actually compensate, you know, physicians and, and groups for, for providing care in, in alternate ways. A lot to unpack there, but, you know, one overarching question I would love your take on Dr. Lundquist first, and if Eric or Dr. Tothi have thoughts on this too, I welcome them, but you mentioned, you know, it's really critical that A, this information that is so coming at you so quickly, whether it's over reimbursement, staffing, the health of your colleagues, if you need to make any sort of contingency plans, so much around this, this virus in particular, but you know, many other things as well. Um, it's fast and quick, so you need to make sure the technology and the data is available, A, that people know how to use it. I'm curious if you've run into, has there been a renewed significance around the credibility of the data? Because as you know, there's just so much, there's a lot of misinformation occurring these days about you name it. I'm curious if this has been either something brought up internally or if patients and families are bringing those questions to you and your colleagues at all. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, on both levels, um, sort of at the enterprise level, right, people are hungry for good information, solid information that they can trust. And then uh, you know, as a still practicing physician, patients are always asking, what do you think is, you know, is this a conspiracy or is this for real, you know? And, and so I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of all over the place, right? And, and uh, unfortunately, I think um, in a lot of cases, we just didn't have, you know, good information because it was, you know, it, normally sort of the cycle of like learning about something and getting data and backing it up with evidence. And, you know, we, we, there was no time for any of that, right? And so things were, I think, being reported, you know, case studies or, you know, a small cohorts of patients, you know, the, the, the N in the scientific, you know, studies were so much smaller because, you know, everyone was just hungry for, for some answers. So I think that's definitely part of it, you know, part of this being open-minded and not, you know, what was, you know, what was science, you know, a couple of weeks ago may not be, you know, and I think we just have to be a, sort of open to that and realize that that's okay, right? It's okay that we're kind of evolving and, and learning and growing. And um, I think let's try not to get frustrated by that um, and, and just try to, you know, go with it and be flexible and, and, and be as safe as we can with the information that we have. 
I actually hope that it carries the other way in that um, that it carries moving forward. We've been much more agile because we've had to be. Um, but one of the one of my one of one of what I see as a frustration um, previously is that we aren't advancing science to as it relates to reality as fast as we could and um, and we take time and it takes we, we keep reaching for silver shiny objects way out there but nonetheless like all of our processes have been taking a long time to get to fruition um, even though we all try to practice around PDSA cycles rapid cycle improvement um, it's not it's not that rapid and what we've learned over the past six months is that we've been really really agile as a, a medical community across the country across the world actually to make small rapid changes that have been successful. Um, so if you, you know, you look at how we care for sick patients that come into the emergency department that are, you know, COVID positive has, has changed enormously um, by, because we've been open in sharing information. We have been um, open in picking up the phone and calling other people to find out what they're doing and using that information. And I hope that um, this type of openness and ability to truly do rapid cycle improvement continues um, as we move out of this and start to think about planning more um, at a strategic level across institutions and across enterprises. I, would, I agree. I think the transparency of I don't know either and I'm soliciting feedback or ideas from the team and you know just the the honesty of my senior team of getting on um, I think they were weekly maybe they were more frequent than that but you know my senior team getting on a town hall virtual town hall with the staff and just you know saying hey you know we're in this together information may have changed i might have just stated it but 20 minutes later it's something new on the news taking place and i think that the staff appreciated i know i certainly did appreciated the um the honesty that I'm learning right alongside you, so let's you know let let's let's work through this together, and then also sharing that with the patients and sharing that with families when they called. You know, I'm also patient relations, so I was getting a lot of those phone calls about you know why isn't there any visitation, and trying to walk them through the you know why there is no visitation. So I think us all being vulnerable and being honest about being vulnerable um, is is what got us through this. Yeah, I, I, um, I think also, you know, you guys had mentioned, you know, the people who are sort of on the front lines are, have been key to providing feedback. And I think more than ever, right, we're listening to people because um, you never know who's going to have sort of the latest information. And um, even when I was, you know, doing the quote training um, of our video software, um, oftentimes I was learning from some of these physicians that were, you know, had discovered something new or some little tool or the way that they were interacting with their MA or something. And so, um, whereas in the past, I think it was definitely much more sort of as a big enterprise, you know, here's the, the workflow that we're training you. And, and this was more like, hey, who's figured it out? Let's share, let's, let's share information. Let's learn from you. We'll get it back to the rest. And, and uh, it's, been, it's, it's been fun to kind of work it that way. Well, this conversation has moved really quickly and I thank you each for bringing your perspectives to it. I think a lot of your ideas, while distinct, also really interrelated to one another and painted a really excellent picture of what you've been up against over the past six months. Points of frustration, uh, bright spots and opportunities. To conclude, I just want to check in with each of you for your final thoughts about 
Um, you know, it doesn't need to be a technology solution per se, but I think something that you're clamoring for, something that you think would really be beneficial for the teams you lead that perhaps isn't widespread or readily available to you right now. Um, is there something that comes to mind that for attendees today uh, might benefit from hearing to know they're not alone if they're clamoring for the same thing? Um, Dr. Lundquist, let me start with you and then we'll check in with Erica and Dr. Tothi. Sure. Well, you know, my kids uh, joke with me and they, they ask me, you know, are you a real doctor? Or do you just play one on online? And um, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, I would really like to see, even though we've had tremendous uh, commitment, you know, to support, you know, virtual care, I, I still think that there's opportunities to, to, to do even better, right? To get, um, you know, kind of the rest of the workflow around it. I think um, if we can have you know, tools or, or workflows um, that assist with, you know, patient intake and, you know, making sure that they're, they have the right software, that it's working. Um, so sort of things that kind of work around that, you know, encounter um, to take the burden off the doctors. We've heard about how they're, you know, they have, you know, burnouts gone. I mean, we had burnout before, but it's gone up, you know, during this time. And I think that, um, you know, my job was always to try to decrease the friction between, you know, my doctors and their technology. Um, and then here we did, you know, we're giving them more technology to, to deal with. And so I think um, finding some additional tools to kind of put around this uh, virtual care that just makes it easier for everybody, both patients and providers to, uh, you know, interact with this technology a little with a little less friction and, and make it a little smoother. So if I had a magic wand, I would, I would want everybody to be where their feet are, be completely present in the moment. I know sometimes we, we're multitasking and we think that's often a good thing, but in reality, people can tell when you're multitasking, they can tell when you're not completely vested in them. And it would be great if we could truly bundle care. I think in our COVID unit, we're doing a much better job of, you know, I'm about to go in this room, so I need A, B, C, and D, so I can take everything in there, you know, one time because I have my PPE on, and I got to make sure that I've spoken to all of the specialists so I can, you know, give them as much information when I'm in this room. So if we could truly be where our feet are, and if we can truly bundle care to optimize the experience for our patients, um, that's um, the utopia I'm looking for. Uh, I would say um, that it's about how we dig deep into the technology we have that um, for me, it's please don't keep throwing new and new and new and new. Um, can we just optimize um, and the technology that I'm using to make it um, uh, easier um, and more facile? Um, uh, and and that would that would save me time and energy and frustration. Um, you know, technology should be an adjunct to the care I provide. It, it certainly isn't taking the place of it, but um, it should make my job easier. It shouldn't add to the frustration. So I would encourage, um, you know, uh, uh, leaders to think about um, the technology that they have in their health system and how they are maximizing it to the best of their ability. Um, that's the first thing. The second um, has nothing to do with technology, um, which is that I think, um, that our care teams need to see 
their leaders and need to, um, we need to be checked on. We need to check on each other. Um, and um, we need to make sure that we're all okay because not everyone is. And um, uh, I think that's really important. Um, and it's even harder now that we're more virtual and we haven't brought everyone back into our institutions. So meetings aren't happening in person where you might swing by a unit afterwards. So there's some very purposeful changes that need to take place around checking in and being present. Um, uh, and then um, the third is between um, now uh, and November 3rd, you need to vote. You need to get out and vote and you need to remind, I believe, all of your um, employees and all of your teams and all of your hospital, all of your patients uh, to vote as well. Um, uh, and um, that's it. Yes, just days away now from the presidential election. So correct. Thank you for tapping on the civic engagement component of all of this and of healthcare as it is. Um, so Dr. Lundquist, Erica, Dr. Tothi, I want to thank each of you for your perspectives today. I appreciate all that you brought to the table for our attendees and I want to wish you continued success, success as you uh, navigate these interesting times that, like Dr. Lundquist said, no strategic plan can fully account for. Um, and attendees, for those of you who joined us for this keynote session, thank you so much. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this and got as much out of it as I had the chance to as their moderator. So thank you very much, and we hope you have a pleasant rest of your afternoon.